Everybody, welcome to the August 4th, 2017 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Duzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on Republican Congressman Ken Buck proclaiming that the Republican Party is dead. In an opinion piece published in the Denver Post on Monday, he cited the party has betrayed its values. He went on to say that Republicans no longer have a vision for a better America and no one has stepped up to provide it. Patty Calhoun from Westward. Uh, this was pretty uh, strong words to hear in a time where Republicans have the House, the Senate, the, the executive office. Uh, were you surprised to hear this from Ken Buck? Not, not so much because Ken Buck has said he wants to leave. He does not want to stay in the swamp. He wrote the book, Drain the Swamp, and he's getting out of the swamp, coming back to Colorado. You know, Republicans have a vision. It's just double vision, maybe triple vision. And everyone's getting dizzy right now with what's going on in that party. But I say more power to them. Strong words and like to have Coloradans speak their mind. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. And speaking of the Independence Institute, John Caldera was also pretty vocal after the lack of a repeal of Obamacare, also coming out uh, pretty angry about what the situation was, was with the Republican Party. What do you, how do you think this is going to play in Colorado, where, as a state, we're, we're still fairly moderate? Well, putting the moderation aside, it's a state where even the Republican Party only got on board with Trump after he won the nomination. Remember, he got mm -hmm. zero out of 35 delegates uh, at the uh, re state Republican convention. Um, and Colorado's legislators, Republican legislators on the whole, were very late to get on the, the Trump train, and as it turns out, for, for good reason. The, the Obamacare semi-baby fix failed because the Republicans only have 52 senators, and, and obviously three went to the other side. That's a thing. Presidents have those kinds of problems. Successful presidents manage to get their things passed by effective lobbying on Capitol Hill and effective public persuasion. Ronald Reagan got his tax cuts through, which ignited a huge economic boom, a, a Democratic House of Representatives. Because Donald Trump, Ronald Reagan, unlike Donald Trump, A, whatever psychological issues he had, he didn't have to act them out in public all the time and make that the most important thing about his presidency. And B, he had an attention span so he could focus on things. If uh, President Trump had been out promoting the repeal, reform, whatever uh, thing like Obama was to get it passed or lots of other presidents have for their own programs, it, it might have passed. But, you know, you, you're, you're dealing with a guy who in, in many respects acts like a toddler. And toddlers, uh, for all their charm, uh, don't get things accomplished that, that had require long-term planning. Eric Sondra, political analyst. Uh, I guess we, we've seen moderates and conservatives within the Republican Party argue before. This is really nothing new. But six months into what was supposed to be a parade-like honeymoon, and now it almost seems like they'd rather go to their corners and not even remember that they still have the majority of all these different places. How did you receive Ken, Ken Buck's editorial? 
Well, I found it interesting at a couple levels. One is he really threw in largely with Donald Trump. I mean, part of his point was not that Trump is the problem here, but that Congress is letting the president down. I thought that was an interesting angle. It probably fits for his congressional district. We'll see if he's coming, per Patty's point, we'll see if he's coming back to Colorado or not. That depends on whether there's an opening at the attorney general's job, and we'll get there in a sec, uh, that he can run for. Uh, Colorado has had a number of Democrat, prominent Democrats over the years who've made a name for themselves by sort of running against their national party. I think back to my mentor Dick Lamb long ago, uh, Roy Romer fell in that category to a certain extent, Gary Hart, and others have fallen into that category. We haven't seen that so much on the Republican side. Uh, Ken Buck is trying to carve out that ground. It's hard, as your question pointed out, Dominic, to make the case that this party is dead when they control all the levers of power and they're at their zenith, in, not just in Washington, but in terms of state legislatures, governors, and all the rest. But they came, their rebound was largely as a protest movement. Now they are struggling to make the transition from protest movement to governing party, and so far that's not going so well. Noelle Phillips from the Denver Post rounds out the panel. Uh, Noelle, what do you think about the, the reaction to it? We've seen it from both folks in the Republican Party and just folks watching it. Just your general reaction to Kim Buck's piece. Um, maybe the public will see this as like a fresh voice and somebody's calling to action to like, let's quit opposing and being obstructionist, protest, party, whatever, and let's get down to business. Let's find a way to work. Because I think collectively everybody is disgusted with Congress right now. And what's going on in Washington? It's been that way for a while. Maybe, maybe this will serve as a call to action. I don't know. It's one guy, and there's a lot of people to try to get on board here. There's a lot of disgust to go around yeah. nowadays. There are many developments in Colorado's gubernatorial race this week. Colorado Lieutenant Governor Donna Lynn has filed paperwork and has begun fundraising, but has not formally announced her entry into the race. Meanwhile, State Treasurer Walker, Walker Stapleton is employing a fairly new fundraising strategy in advance of his expected run with a fundraising event later this month for the Better Colorado Now PAC. And finally, former Denver Mayor Wellington Webb and his wife Wilma officially endorsed Mike Johnston's bid to become the Democratic nominee. Patty, there's stuff all over the place here. Uh, just one of these issues would have been fun to talk about. Now we have three. Take your pick, your reaction this week. Well, the clown car is getting increasingly crowded. And what's interesting is many of these candidates are not clowns. But it's going to be such a strange numbers game to figure out who comes on top, out on top in the primary. And there's one name we haven't even heard yet, but um, Eric referred to, which is Cynthia Kaufman, the current attorney general, who could be a very formidable candidate in the Republican Party, too. She would, she would be the only woman running there, whereas now with Donna Lynn, we're looking at maybe two women running in the Democratic Party. I don't think people are just going to vote on gender alone, but it makes a difference when you're going in on a very, very crowded field and what there could be five or six candidates in the Republican Party, how, the, how that vote's going to split. Uh, Walker Stapleton's approach is interesting. He, a lot of the old guard Republicans certainly are signing on for that party. He's going to raise a lot of money, which he's going to need, because this is going to be a very, very expensive race. Um, Mike Johnston, who's got in earliest, it's interesting that the Webs are endorsing him. He's, he's made money, which is more important, really, than the Webs' endorsement on a, nation, a, sit, a statewide race. That, that one uh, surprised me, too, but I could see making a difference, especially if you have a lot of, I mean, the Democratic base is going to start in Denver, so even though you're only talking about the web's influence in Denver, it could still be influential. David, 
the methodology that we refer to with Walker Stapleton is that before he officially joined, enters the race, like as a basically a gubernatorial race-wise, a civilian, he can be attending a PAC event, and a PAC can raise as much money as they want from a donor. He, the, the event later this month is $10,000 a couple. If he was officially running, it was officially a campaign event, the fundraising restrictions are far lower, I think around $1,000 or so from an individual. Do you think what we're seeing here that started as a federal model for the 2016 presidential race will become more of a local model even beyond Walker Stapleton? Oh, ab absolutely, and it's another example of the perversity of campaign finance so-called reform. You know, you have candidates, it, 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 these laws and restrictions on political speech, including giving money to a candidate to promote that candidate's speech, uh, heavily favor people who are wealthy, like Jared Polis on the Democratic side or Victor Mitchell on the Republican side, who can self-finance and everyone else is at a disadvantage. You know, and, the, uh, and at the, as you say, at the gubernatorial level, you can only get a contribution of, I think it's $1,150, yep. which is pretty low. You know, Eugene McCarthy, who uh, successfully drove incumbent President Lyndon Johnson out of the, his reelection race by making a strong showing in the New Hampshire primary, always said, I couldn't have done it, what I did in 68, with the campaign finance laws we have now, because... You know, if you're Linda Johnson in the establishment, you can raise a, you can raise a thousand dollars at a time pretty readily. But if you're the upstart challenger, uh, you know he needed some some big bucks from a, a fairly small number of people, and the system always works. It, and we made campaign elections like the the federal corporate tax code, where it's very punitive and complicated for the little guy, but the, the big guys uh, with the, the best, who can afford the best lawyers manage to find workarounds, as Walker Stapleton is, is doing com completely legally. Eric, we have been around this table tantalized by big, fun, competitive primaries before. And we're talking over a year before the general election of next year's race. And they've kind of fallen apart, which I think is just a normal political inertia. But just when we started to think that it's going to contract a little bit with that Perlmutter getting out of the race, it's still continuing to grow. We're still hearing more people saying that they're going to run or they're, they're fundraising. Do you think we're going to see some large, bruising primaries uh, early next summer? I think you can guarantee it. Not everyone who's at the starting line might necessarily be at the finish line. But there are going to be plenty of people, plenty of formidable people, in both primaries at the finish line. You have a, on the Republican side, hard time imagining Brockler, Stapleton. If Kaufman gets in, she gets to the finish line. She might not win, but she at least makes it that far. On the Democratic side, I don't know who goes away. I mean, you have very formidable, substantial people here. A couple of very quick notes. For, well, first of all, David's right on on campaign finance reform. I won't repeat it, but uh, he, he hit the nail on the head. For Donald Lynn, it struck me as a weird way to enter or sort of enter the race, mainly because of how coy she's been for the past several months. And if you're going to be that coy, then you've got to get in with all ten toes and all ten fingers and all the rest. Uh, you might be able to play this exploratory committee game in a different circumstance, but it strikes me as not the strongest entry that I could imagine. She could be a strong candidate, but we shall see. For Walker Stapleton, you know, it's reminiscent of a tactic right out of the Jeb Bush playbook, who is a Walker Stapleton relative. It did not work so well for Jeb Bush. 
he will raise a Walker will raise a lot of money come two or three weeks down the road this month at this event. But at some point, he's got to put his cards on the table, get his hat in the ring. Uh, there's a coy quality to that, different than the Donald Lynn coy, but uh, I, I don't think it ultimately serves him. And to Webb, uh, Wellington and Wilma Webb, I mean, hats off to them. Most substantial politicians like that tend to keep their powder dry till they, you know, see which way the wind is blowing and then go with the front runner. That's not the Webb style. They didn't do that. They picked their horse and, um, and uh, you know, more power to them. No, I'm imagining that as big as these primaries are and the kind of attention they're attracting, it's maybe probably making for some uncomfortable cocktail parties around Colorado. You have <laughs> Governor Hickenlooper showing up and having to be nice about, oh, Donald Lynn would be great governor. Oh, and so would Michael Johnson and, and Kerry Kennedy and Jared Polis isn't bad. And then you have uh, Republicans going to this fundraiser that's a pack, but it's, it's as Patty said, the big heavy hitters, you know, Elway showing up, other, other uh, uh, establishment Republicans who are probably going to be getting phone calls from Brockler and maybe Kaufman and Sheetrams in the race. How do you think these big primaries are going to be affecting Colorado and the community and the politics for the rest of this year? Well, I think it'll be fun. And for the record, I don't get invited to those cocktail parties. <laughs> um, but it should make for interesting politics um, for an entire year, year and a half. Um, I'm curious about the public's appetite for this because we just came off this bruising presidential campaign. And... Everybody's kind of fatigued from it, and I've heard people go, you know, about the Trump administration and the situation in Washington. I just want it to be over. And now we're going to hit this, like, big gubernatorial campaign with you can't even hardly remember who's jumping in from day to day. Um, so that'll be interesting to see how the public digests all of this. And, um, you know, is there more disgust to go around if everybody starts getting really petty and at, at each other's throats, and then we can't get anything done in Colorado either? Might be some uh, Rolaids or Pepto-Bismol coming uh, <laughs> a little, at least a little later this year. Denver City Council and Mayor Michael Hancock are working on proposals that would protect individuals from federal immigration enforcement policies. According to the Denver Post, Mayor Hancock is drafting an executive order creating a legal fund to assist immigrants during court removal proceedings. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Denver City Council members are working on a more stringent city ordinance that would stop the Denver Sheriff's Department from notifying federal authorities when ICE detainees will be released from jail. David, we've talked about this issue before, but this seems this is the first time we've seen uh, both the mayor and the council putting a really concerted effort towards this. They're not sitting on the sidelines on this issue. Do you think this is what the city of Denver needs, and are they representing the constituency well? Well, they're, they're certainly representing some of their constituents, including vocal ones who are very strong advocates for, for illegal aliens. Um, for the, the mayor's plan for this legal defense fund, uh, He's talking about raising money through private donations, which, which is fine if he wants to. That's what he wants to do. Um, I don't think taxpayer money should be spent on it unless the city council votes for it. Part of our American system of government is the legislature is in charge of appropriating money. On the money they're going to lose uh, from cutoffs of Department of Justice grants, some of it they're clearly going to lose. Other Attorney General Sessions has been criticized for adding conditions to federal grants that aren't in the statute for it. And you, you, he can't legally do that. It's one thing if Congress says you only get the grant if you do the following, but I don't think the Attorney General can, can on his own add conditions to, to other programs. I saw Kevin Flynn, 
who in the former member of this table uh, in the Denver City Council. Of course, he can't come on this channel because Channel 8 made him sign a, a non-compete clause. Uh, but he explained that this proposal, which is likely going to pass the council, the only practical effect of it is it adds to the class of people who get the catch and release proposed policy of the, the Denver jail, heroin dealers. That's in, as Kevin's explanation, that's the only difference we make. It is as heroin dealing to the list of things, well, just because we caught you doing it doesn't mean we're going to tell ICE about that because then, then you might get deported for that. And Kevin's view was, you know, he's, he's sympathetic uh, to illegal aliens in general, but not, not the ones who are, who are heroin vendors. Eric, we're used to hearing about executive orders from D.C. I, I can't remember the last time I heard about it here in Denver, especially when you have a council and a mayor that usually work pretty well together in agreement. Were you surprised to see at least this initial proposal idea come out as an, a potential executive order? No, not necessarily. I mean, I think Michael Hancock has been trying to massage his way through this issue ever since Donald Trump was elected president. I want to be brief and really give the floor here to Noelle because she's written a couple of stories that are, you know, directly why we're talking about this for the Post, uh, written for the Post this week. I, I think this whole thing is largely symptomatic of a couple bigger issues. I mean, Denver is just a microcosm of what's going on in big city after big city uh, around the country. So much of it is just the lack of trust in a President Trump coming out of so many constituencies, particularly uh, Hispanic American constituencies, but the broad liberal constituencies. I think you have to be careful. I mean, there's some people, per Noel's stories, who were released without notifying ICE that they were being released, who were bad actors and who 95% of the voters of this country would say, if they're here illegally and, and exhibiting this kind of conduct, say goodbye and get them back across the border. So, you know, Trump has tapped into a vein, as we all know, that is a vein with some, some traction there. Secondly, lastly, it just, you know, at some point, and the, the stars are not lining up in Washington where you can imagine this happening, at some point we do need some real immigration reform in this country where you let some of these people out of the shadows, you take this shadow over some of the, 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 this class of people, and yet you do get control of your borders and don't have a completely open immigration policy, which many people on the left seem to think is, is what we need. Noel, as Eric alluded to, you wrote uh, some great pieces on this and you know, really did the hard work for us. I get to write a couple sentences for the prompter. You actually did the hard work in the reporting. The floor is yours. What do we need to know about these stories? Uh, well, the, the big sticking point, the, the mayor and the council both kind of have the same goal in the mind, in which is to appease a very strong, vocal Latino community in Denver um, and to, frankly, give the middle finger to the Trump administration. And we, we don't agree with where you're going here. And that's, so they're kind of on the same page. I think the mayor may be trying to keep us out of l less trouble with Jeff Sessions, who yesterday uh, wrote a memo and sent letters to, like, Baltimore, Albuquerque, a couple of California police departments saying, hey, you, you want to be a part of this public safety program training to curb violence in your cities, I need you to answer these three questions. And they were all about ICE's relationship with jails. And so in Denver, the big difference between mayor and council is this release notification to ICE. The courts have told jailers you can't keep people in jail any longer than necessary. So if you're in jail and you've made bond, they have to let you out according to court decisions. ICE is, would 
prefer that you hold them an extra 48 hours so they can come pick them up on an immigration detainer. Denver's jail doesn't even have room to do that. Denver's not going to do that. But right now what Denver does do is send a fax to ICE, you know, inmate Phillips here made bond. We're expecting to release her at 10 p.m. And they may not know that inmate Phillips has made bond until 5 p.m., so ICE only gets like five hours' notice and probably doesn't have the manpower to be sitting outside the downtown detention center to grab the inmate. But that's the big sticking point, I think, between the mayor's proposal and city council's proposed ordinance. And it'll be interesting to see who's willing to sit, come to the table and sit and hash out a plan for Denver. Because I, I think it's fair to ask, is it wise to have an executive auditor? Because he can do it. They can pass an ordinance and he can run an executive order and we have two things. Um, so it'll be interesting to how, see how it plays out. Pay, this is clearly a big issue in Denver, but we're used to seeing big projects at the, the mayor's office and the city council chambers. This is uh, one of the big headlines are getting over a really emotional issue in Denver. How do you think it's all going to pan out? Well, clearly we need an updated policy anyway because anything based on faxes is not exactly ready for this for this decade. I mean, really, who's last seen a fax that isn't about getting your roof redone? Um, so that's number one. The feds definitely need to update their policies, and they're doing it in a very weird way right now, coming down on four cities, and Denver certainly could be one of them in the next few weeks. So there are two weeks before this bill, this ordin proposed ordinance is introduced to the full council. I think we are going to see a lot of working behind the scenes to kind of come up with a compromise that gets rid of the heroin people, that maybe replaces the faxes with peri uh, carrier pigeons to slow things down. They're going to, there's going to be a lot of maneuvering because the mayor's administration certainly didn't want this proposal to come and box them into a corner with the feds. So they're going to try to come up with some compromise everyone can live with. Let's get a quick take on this last one. In a 10 to 3 vote, the Denver City Council approved a controversial contract allowing an annual three day weekend festival to be held at the Overland Park Golf Course starting in September of 2018. The concert promoter, Superfly Productions, were awarded the contract and will be responsible for a $200,000 lease and will be required to restore the turf. Eric, your quick take on this one. Were you surprised? No, I wasn't surprised. I think the votes were there real quick. Uh, I think this is a sign of things to come in this city. This is an increasingly vibrant, increasingly crowded, increasingly cosmopolitan city. And you're going to have this tension between vibrant events like this and neighborhood concerns. I was interested that Joel and Clark, the city council person from that area, did end up supporting this despite all the neighborhood pressure. Noel, what do you think is, uh, do you think Joel and Clark's going to be sweating this one out? Yeah, um, the number that grabbed my attention was 80,000 expected concert goers. Um, Mile High Stadium holds 76,000. Coors Field holds just over 50,000. So it's going to be a solid three-day game day in a neighborhood in a golf course with I believe has like one entry exit point. So it should be really interesting to see how the neighborhood, I mean, it's three days, so it's not forever, but it could be a tense three days. Patty, do you think this is going to set a precedent? Yes, and I think more people will be going to try to put some of these events in. Remember, seven years ago, parks had this whole policy. Kevin Flynn was just recently remembering it, that only certain parks were going to be available for events, and, and uh, City Park was not allowed to have a big music festival, even though City Park is a lot easier to get to than Overland. They don't have a good policy yet on how they're going to get the 80,000 people there, maybe bungee jumping, parachuting them in. There are a lot of details still to be worked out. David, wrap it up for us. The 
festival producer is the same same folks who run the Bonnaroo Festival in Tennessee, which has been a huge thing, very successful and well run. So there's, I think, some hope for competence. And I believe they'll be running their own shuttle buses to bring people in, which is much wiser than relying on uh, RTD. They might be parking mile high for all we know. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Well, when you talk about immigration policies that need to be clarified, what happened to the eight German students who were going to Salida for a three-week session? Very suspicious. All turn detained and turned back at DIA. David. Well, a good thing was the Congress passed the uh, bill to strengthen and prevent the president from uh, repealing sanctions on China, Russia, and North Korea. The bad thing is the president might just blow past him and flagrantly violate them, and if and when he does, he will point to the precedent of Obama, who in flagrant felony violation of the Iran sanctions sent them a cargo plane with $400 million in foreign currency uh, to pay ransom for hostages. He broke the law, and so he's now set the precedent for Trump to do a similar thing. Eric. How about keeping it local? John Bolin, son of Patrick Bolin, Bronco owner. I mean, uh, what did he, what did he call himself? The blood of the city. Uh, now in Cal, after the incident in Denver, now in California, driving over 100 miles an hour, arrested, trying to talk his way out of it by citing who he was. I think he's l lucky in California that the cop was not a Raiders fan because I'm not <laughs> sure being a, advertising your Bronco connection in California is going to get you very far. Noel. Um, I'm going to give another disgrace of the week to Digital First Media, whose CEO, Steve Rossi, sent a memo to employees July 20th and said that uh, the company remains solidly profitable and thank you for your contributions, but you're not getting a raise. Um, in Denver, you know, we've got journalists who work hard and really care about this city and we can barely afford to live in it because we just cannot keep up because our company won't give us raises. That's certainly a shame. Let's get to see something nice about somebody rather quickly. Patty. Uh, we don't celebrate some of the good th things in this city enough. Joyce Meskus, who retired last month, but had taken care of a su succession plan to keep the tattered cover going in Denver. It's a great asset. A thriving bookstore. David. The Denver Press Club had an event this week organized by roundtable person Kara uh, DeGette, among others, uh, because the, it's, it's now on the National Register of Historic Places. Eric. Longer discussion, but real quickly. Some U.S. senators on the Republican side, particularly Senator Jeff Flake from Arizona, Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska, a few of them becoming increasingly outspoken, somewhat a la Ken Buck, but in a different vein, trying to redefine what it means to be a Republican in this and a conservative in this Trump era. Jeff Flake is somebody to keep your eye on. Noel. Um, I was sitting at the intersection of Lincoln and Colfax uh, Wednesday morning, and a man in a wheelchair was trying to pull himself up Cap Hill. And a young woman walking the opposite direction through the crosswalk noticed it. She was obviously on her way to work with a backpack and work clothes, turned around and pushed the man all the way, not just across the crosswalk, but all the way up Cap Hill. It was like a little selfless, anonymous, don't need a bunch of glory, act of kindness that kind of made my day. Here, here. That is all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. As always, be sure to check out our CIO postgame segment on Twitter and Facebook. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Gazzuti. Thanks very much for watching. Good night. Thank you.